0: Hello, welcome to the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Ari Barbalat. I am honored to be in dialogue today with Danny Bassett and Perry Zern. Danny is the J. Peter Skirkanich Professor in the Department of Bioengineering, Department of Electrical and Systems Engineering, and the Department of The Department of Physics and Astronomy, the Department of Neurology, and the Department of Psychiatry. He is also an external professor of the Santa Fe Institute. Perry is an associate professor of philosophy at American University and affiliate faculty in the Department of Critical Race, Gender, and Culture Studies. We are here today to discuss their new book, Curious Minds. The Power of Connection, published by MIT Press 2022. Thanks for being with me today.
2: Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us.
0: To begin, please tell us about yourselves. Um, What formative events in your life made you curious about curiosity?
2: Yeah, it's a really great question. Um, I like to go back to our childhood. Uh, so we were both homeschooled from the time we were four, and we're just starting to read uh, till the time that we went to college, and. Um, our mom uh, developed this uh, curriculum for us that I think instilled in us a really wide ranging and broad kind of curiosity. So she would ask us at the beginning of every semester what we were interested in learning, and then she would gather materials that would help us to understand that topic from multiple disciplinary perspectives. So she would pull history on the topic, science on the topic, medicine on the topic, literature on the topic, art on the topic. um, And we would really dig deeply into that one topic, but from these different perspectives. And so I think that 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 um, really encouraged us to think creatively and curiously about the different ways that you can um understand and and imagine our world. Um so that's something that I think has has stuck with us. But perhaps the the germination of the book itself came a little bit later. Perry, I don't know if you want to talk about that.
1: Yeah, sure. So I was writing my dissertation on the philosophy of curiosity and um Which I just think came out of, in a sense, just a love of learning in general. And then, um, you know, I've been buried in the history of philosophy for a long time. I I really like intellectual um, histories and thought. And I had noticed how curiosity gets a bad rap early in, you know, the the ancient period, the medieval period, early modern period. There's a real struggle around, is curiosity even good? So I was fascinated by this problem. So I was doing a dissertation on philosophy of curiosity. And um, Danny at the time was doing a postdoc and focusing on neural flexibility. So the flexibility in our minds that allows us to learn uh, better. And so I'm thinking about curiosity, Danny's thinking about learning, we're thinking about how these things actually work. And we just started talking and saying, you know, I think there's something here that we could really draw out together, a resonance between our interests and our fields. And that that's really the germ of curious minds right there
2: which then continued for seven years of um collaborating as scholars with one another Uh, and and now the book is sort of the culmination of those seven years of working together
1: in which we published what 23 papers or something exactly
0: yes that's amazing congratulations on this accomplishment what inspired you to write this book
1: we really believe that there was something, we have something to say about curiosity that hasn't been said before. So we posit a new theory of curiosity. Historically speaking, curiosity, and even in, you know, in, in contemporary everyday sorts of um, settings, there's, there's an understanding that curiosity is this desire to know something, right? Desire to acquire a piece of information that I don't already have. I have a question, I need to fill in this information gap with the answer, and curiosity is what helps me get there. That's been this stereotypical understanding of curiosity, and it's driven a lot of interesting work in philosophy, psychology, neuroscience, education, and beyond. But we think it misses something absolutely critical about curiosity and that is that curiosity isn't simply a drive to acquire information it's a capacity to connect that information to other information we have connect ourselves to each other and to our world to build actual structures of knowledge that are interconnected architectural um kind of things in our minds right knowledge hangs together in a particular way and curiosity is that capacity to connect the pieces to, to connect the dots really. So that's it was really a passion to share that vision of curiosity. Danny, do you want to fill in a little bit more there?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So it also I think came this book and and our investigations into curiosity together came at a time in the science of curiosity that was really calling for new theories. Um so individuals who have been working in the science of curiosity for several decades have um come to a point where uh, there's this sense that we don't really have the perfect definition yet with which to investigate the concept of curiosity. And if you don't have a good definition of an idea or a topic, then it's difficult to construct experiments that very carefully test hypotheses. Um, so many investigators are calling for maybe just disbanding the um, the quest for definitions altogether, or maybe searching for um, definitions in new fields. And I think... Um, What comes out of philosophy is this connective definition of curiosity that then if we take it into the science, it allows us to just rethink what curiosity is altogether and allows us to um, synthesize a lot of information that's been present in the literature, but that people haven't been able to synthesize in
1: quite that way yet before.
0: How can your book help readers improve their social skills if read as a self-help book?
1: It's an interesting question. Uh, we did. It's certainly. It's. We didn't write it as a self-help book, but I think, as with any really good book in science or the humanities or the arts, we can learn things about ourselves by reading it. Right. By reading good scholarship and good literature, and so one of the pieces of information that I think is especially illuminating in the book is that we 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 propose different styles of curiosity. So if curiosity is this capacity to connect information and, it's, and and allows us to build an architecture of knowledge, well, there are different architectural styles in the world, right? The same is true in our mind. There are different architectural uh, styles of knowledge building or of curiosity. And so we identify uh, three in the book. Danny, do you want to jump in there?
2: Yeah so um the first one is the busybody or the butterfly and that's somebody who is collecting um pieces of information in a more sort of random fashion so they may pull information from here and from there and from there and connect it up in this very broad expansive um and very generative way um in contrast the hunter is somebody who connects information in um in a much more directed fashion. So sniffing out trails or following particular um, intuitions and then identifying uh, the the piece of information that you are looking for. The third style is the dancer who um, leaps between different pieces of information across different boundaries of knowledge or across um, cultures or across disciplines to create uh, something new. And so those three different styles of curiosity are um, ones that we can see in both ourselves and in other people. So if you're asking about how that could impact our social engagement, I think it would give us, it gives us a different appreciation for the diversity of of individuals around us and our capacity to respect and value um, the different styles of curiosity in our friends, family, coworkers, and colleagues.
0: What is your book's contribution to epistemology? What would a graduate student or academic specialist in epistemology gain from reading your book? What would an experienced scholar be surprised by or find novel in your book? What does your book teach us about the nature of truth and of knowledge?
1: Yeah, perhaps I'll take a little bit about epistemology. And Danny, I don't know if you want to jump on truth and uh, <laughs> toward the end there. But, you know, epistemology is a big word that means the study of knowledge. It's very... It's a very simple concept, right? So it's a field that tries to study what knowledge is, how we make it, what we do with it, what justifies our knowledge and makes it true or truer, right? So that's the field of epistemology. Insofar as the field of epistemology is focused on knowledge, and curiosity is one of these things that helps us build knowledge, it, it makes a lot of sense that our book would have something to say to the field of epistemology, or to anyone who wants to think about what knowledge is and how it works. Uh, and and the particular, the specific contribution of our book really lies in this redefinition of what curiosity is, because if we redefine curiosity as this capacity to connect information, perception, experiences, knowers, and worlds, that also redefines knowledge ultimately as a network, as a network of those ideas, of those perceptions, of those experiences, of those knowers, and of those worlds. So there's an implicit and in fact explicit at some points retheorization of knowledge in the book about curiosity and it, and it's for that that an epistemologist or anyone who wants to think about what knowing is would read the book danny
2: yeah and that that changing the sort of Rethinking the structure of knowledge as a network, I think, is really helpful because it provides us with a different perspective on the mental affordance of curiosity. So um, this idea that knowledge is a network is is not necessarily a completely new idea. There have been individuals who have suggested um, similar ideas in the past in the sense that, for example, um, Henri Poincaré suggests that um, science is not uh, a study of things themselves as the dogmatists in their simplicity imagine. But the relations among things outside these relations, there is no reality knowable. So really underscoring the fact that it's the relations between units of information that matter for knowledge. And then um, another person just to pull out uh, another voice would be uh, John Dewey, who suggests that knowledge is such a network of interconnections that any past experience would offer a point of advantage from which to get at the problems presented in a new experience. And I I really like that. that quote because it suggests it it, it underlines the um, the affordance that a connective curiosity has. It allows us to connect the past information to the present problem, and then to connect the present problem to uh, making decisions that could change our futures. And those connections across different eras of time um, in the structure of knowledge allow us to live really quite differently um, as curious individuals.
0: What do you mean by the term crackability? Can you explain this term?
1: Sure. So the, the whole book really focuses on redefining curiosity as this capacity to connect and in connecting to build knowledge networks. Our, we, we talk about our knowledge growing, right? When we learn in our, in our book, we characterize that growing as a building. We build knowledge uh and so the whole book is really focused on that uh but at the very end we talk about how important it is and how often curiosity is involved in breaking connections too so if you think about the sort of classic we you know um copernican revolution right there's a certain connection between the earth and the sun that was flipped on its head um the connection was what the old connection was broken and a new connection was built Curiosity does both things. It does this building. It does this positive, making new connections between things. But in order to do that, sometimes it also has to break or to crack, put a crack in the edifice of knowledge. And there's a lot of really amazing moments in the history of philosophy, certainly the history of science, the history of kind of social movements and social organizing that that really use this capacity of curiosity to crack connections open and allow for new connections to be built. So that's what we focus on when we talk about crackability we say that you know curiosity needs to needs to maintain this ability to crack things open. Danny?
2: Yeah. And I think it's important to think about um, if you were building uh, knowledge as if it was a mechanical structure. So some of my research is in mechanics. If you were building knowledge as a mechanical structure and you connected every piece of information to the nearest piece of information, you would end up with a lattice-like structure, like the Eiffel Tower, for example, or a telecommunications tower. Um, but those structures are purposefully rigid, So whenever you have a lot of triangles, they are purposefully rigid. Those are constructed so as not to be able to move or to flexibly change. In contrast, if we as humans want to create in our minds a knowledge that is flexible to adapt to new scenarios, to new experiences, to new perspectives, to new data, then we need to be able to be building knowledge that isn't fully connected, that allows for some gaps and that those gaps in the edifice or in the structure allow for flexibility. In some sense, you can think of it a little bit as related to intellectual humility. So intellectual humility is can be thought of as assuming that we don't have all of the connections yet. We don't know exactly how this piece of information fully connects to everything else that we know. We know that there is a relationship, but we don't understand all of it. And that that privileging of unknowing um, allows for a lot of uh flexibility in our in our cognitive mapping.
0: What is your book's contribution? To psychotherapy and mental health. how What can therapists and social workers gain from this book in helping clients?
1: There's a wonderful emphasis in the clinical and therapeutic world on curiosity. And the emphasis is not only on curiosity as it is practiced by the therapist, for example, right? And openness to whatever that it is that the client brings forward. But Particularly, it's a recommendation for the facilitation of curiosity in the client themselves to get curious about what is it that they're struggling with, where does it come from, how does it manifest, what things might they want to do to change particular behaviors or accept particular behaviors, right? So there's already a really strong, wonderful strand of work um, focusing on on curiosity in the therapeutic relationship. Again, for us, it's going to be that we've redefined curiosity. That's the contribution of the book. And I think that this turn to think of curiosity, not as the acquisition of new knowledge, but rather as this capacity to make new connections is just gonna explode open what psychotherapists and psychotherapy can think about curiosity, right? I I, I actually think it's implicit in the work of therapy to build new connections, right? I mean, often the self is alienated, we are alienated from ourselves in all kinds of ways uh, or alienated from our memories, right? If we think about trauma work, what is it to build rebuild, build new connections um, and curiosity as that capacity? I think it's just opening up that whole field is is part of what the book offers. Danny, I don't know if you want to add to that.
2: Yeah, just that to underscore the fact that you also um, we we focus specifically on neurodiversity and part of the book, too, and in appreciating the diverse ways in which we may be connecting pieces of information, not just necessarily in the three styles that we talked about earlier. So the busybody and the hunter and the dancer, but more broadly than that. Imagining that every mind can have a different style of curiosity and particularly that um, individuals with neuroatypicalities or neurodiverse individuals may be connecting information differently. And with that understanding, um, I think we can uh, sort of um, encourage in ourselves a greater curiosity to appreciate and see uh, the kind of curiosity that other individuals have. Um, Perry, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about the, the Neurodiversity um, bit.
1: Yeah, I mean, that that really covers it, and we do a little bit of exploring how that should, should change our pedagogies in, in educational settings as well.
0: Thank you. What do you mean by the term knowledge scape? Can you explain this concept?
1: Sure. Danny, do you want to go right for that?
2: Sure. Yeah. So we're really interested in the fact that our minds are building these um, connective shapes between pieces of information, but they're doing that in a really interesting way that um, is supported by a part of the brain that's called the hippocampal entorhinal system, and that's a system that um, allows us to map our physical world, our physical landscape. It's also this the same region that helps us to map and, and navigate conceptual worlds too. And so, there's actually, uh, I kind of want to say uncanny, but it's not uncanny. It's a it's a, a striking correspondence between knowledge. Um, and the sort of structure of knowledge or the shape or landscape of knowledge and a physical landscape in how our minds engage with that material so we are explicitly using the word knowledge scape to sort of indicate that um, expansive view of what knowledge is and how our minds engage with it
1: and yeah you know we I think this is implicit in a lot of the ways we talk about knowledge so what we say sometimes you know wow, that class, that book, that conversation blew my mind, right? A whole new world opened up. We say things like that. Uh, so we implicitly, therefore, think of knowledge as having these landscapes, as having whole new terrains that we might stumble upon or be led to or led through. Uh, and and those, the, pl- those places, those new knowledge scapes have a sense of sort of what what is familiar and then what is strange, what, what are big ideas in this new field that I've stumbled upon and what are smaller ones, what are their relationships to each other? Where is the river You know, of thought that's just rushing through it and kind of feeding all of the other plants and animals and, and things like that. So I think it's, it's, a, it's we have this concept of knowledge implicitly and part of what we're doing in the book is making it far more explicit and then mobilizable.
0: What does your book say to teachers who wish to improve students' curiosity in the classroom? What do you recommend?
1: So many things. <laughs> I think I might mention here are, you know, we have these three styles of curiosity that we talk about, and that has significant implications for the classroom setting. So if people if, if people in a classroom setting or any learning environment, really, even if it's a workplace, have different styles of curiosity, but the professor or the teacher or the leader or the boss doesn't recognize more than one style, then a lot of curiosity is going to get lost. It's going to get silenced or squashed, um, et cetera. So it's really important that learning environments wherever they occur have capacity to facilitate curiosity of multiple st- in multiple styles. Um, but what's what's exciting for us is that we finish the book with what we call bestiary in which we talk about actually 18 different creatures and their styles of curiosity and we say, you know what humans can learn a lot from the curiosity of other beings in the world. And so we don't just think that necessarily human sty- curiosity styles are only three, are limited to the three that we describe. But in fact, they might be far more multivariant. And, and that's the kind of call that we want to kind of throw on the table for people thinking about learning environments. How many styles of curiosity are there? And how must that essentially, right, to the heart, change what it is that we do in those spaces? Danny. Yeah,
2: I think it so as Perry was saying, it alters how we would think about um, understanding and perceiving and seeing individuals in the classroom and in a company um, or, or institution differently. But also, I think specifically in the context of context of teaching, I think there's a lot of room for reimagining the assessments that we provide um, to students to evaluate their knowledge and to um engage in assessment practices that are expansive in not in in encouraging and and valuing and um inspiring the students to engage in different curious practices. So, um, it's very typical in in traditional learning environments to assume one particular style of curiosity. Say, for example, the hunter, um, and to construct all of the assessments, the essay prompts, the tests around. The hunter-like curiosity. And I think if we understand that there are multiple kinds of curiosity in the classroom, in front of us, in these individual um, students, then that would alter, it, it feels unfair to provide assessments only for people who think as hunters, right? That we should be having assessments that encourage and value these alternative or different or diverse styles of curiosity.
0: What are the similarities and differences between curiosity in animals and curiosity in humans?
1: First, I think there's a lot more research to be done there. And so that's something that we would invite. We would, we would love to see more research between the, between, human animals and non-human animals and their and their practices of curiosity but um one of the things that we do in the beast here that i mentioned earlier is we you know we pull out these different creatures you might think about the cat for example i don't know how many times someone has said oh you study curiosity but curiosity killed the cat right which seems like a great opener and then the question is what we do with that that association of um cats dying and curious curiosity um there's a wonderful poem by alistair reed who retakes up this um long-standing uh adage right and and says actually you know what it's not the curiosity as some bad guy came out and killed the cat but rather that the cat got curious about what it was like to die and then the cat tried it essentially and and in flipping this whole thing on its head part of what alistair reed is inviting is saying you know what um he says part of (laughs) dying is something that the living have to do it is something that we should be oriented toward in a curious and an open way and in a wondering way rather than in trying never to think about it and always pushing it away uh so maybe it's Maybe the cat has some much richer lesson for us. And that's, that's the kind of thing we do in the bestiary is we revisit some of these associations and pull out kind of deeper lessons. Danny, I don't know if you want to share one of your favorites.
2: Yeah. Well, actually, I was going to say that um, your question makes me think a lot about the class that I'm teaching right now, which is motivated yeah. very much by the bestiary at the, at the end of the book. Um, and it's where we, every week, there's a different animal of the week. And we study the way that that animal moves and breathes and lives and builds community and place to live and engages with other animals. Um, and how those movements in the physical world that the animal engages in can help us to rethink how the mind can move. So it's really very much, um, motivating, suggesting that we can have a better understanding of our own minds and of the capacity of our own minds by watching how animals move in a physical space. So this gets back to this correspondence between the knowledge landscape and the physical landscape. So here are animals moving around their physical landscape in these really wonderful and wild ways. And we can take those as sort of lessons for how we would think about the mind moving on a knowledge landscape.
0: What makes a good question? How does your book shed light
1: on this? Then are you immediately ready for that one? <laughs> well, just that I
2: think that um, I love the question of how to make a good question. I think it's a really, it's a difficult one. What I have increasingly, I mean, given the um, the new sort of definition of curiosity, it feels important to not just ask um, questions that require, that that solicit a solitary answer, But that solicits a connective relational answer that always open up more questions that are never, never solved, never finished Um, and that that invitation, I think, to change the nature of questioning is something that um, is a natural extension of the definition that we've proposed
1: yeah and I would say you know I would focus in on that good right good for what and good for whom and good when (laughs) uh I think that I think questions can be good in all kinds of senses of good you know here's the philosopher coming out at me okay what do we mean by good uh first before we apply it to questions um and and I think that's I think that's actually a whole what is it can of worms um to to try to draw out I think uh, what I think I hear most often when people say, well, you know, how do we get to be- asking better questions? I think what people wanna say is questions that are more reflective that are more imaginative and creative that are more honest about how something is complex and hard to understand um that are more useful for uh, improving human life and non-human life and resolving certain social and or environmental issues right so there's there's a lot of things embedded in the in the asking a good question um and i would i would say that um yeah, I just I would just would love to 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 kind of map all of those meanings out and and then tackle a question like how do we ask better questions?
0: How do you define curiosity? How is your definition similar or different from competing definitions?
2: Denny Yeah, so we we define it as a practice of knowledge building, um, where knowledge is this related interconnective structure. And so I think there are multiple ways in which it's different from previous definitions. One is that rather than being acquisitional, it's very relational. It's focused on connecting pieces of information or knower to knower or knower to information. Um, but we also focus a lot on this notion that it's a practice too, that it's a movement, that it's a kinesthetics. It is it is something that is that is an action of the mind and or of the body. And the fact that it's a practice means that it's something that we can engage in um, and grow in differently. Um, so it's not we don't think of curiosity as something that you were sort of born with at a particular level necessarily, um, but it's something that you can um, you can grow in and you can practice. And in fact, what that means is that we can learn to practice different kinds of curiosity, different styles of curiosity, and even and mentor one another or be mentored by somebody else um, in a particular style of curiosity. And so that opens up a lot of new spaces for what mentoring might mean um, for, for a curious mind.
0: What role do mathematics and geometry play in your book? How is curiosity manifest in these disciplines? What can someone who is not a quote-unquote math person learn from these fields regarding the nature and importance of curiosity?
2: Um, So mathematics is... Well, number one, beautiful. Uh, And number two is a really beautiful language in which to study connective structures. So if we're talking about curiosity as something that connects, then we may want to understand what's different about the connective structure of the Eiffel Tower versus the um, scaffold on the side of a building uh, in our local town or a telecommunications tower or a bunch of... um, hard spaghetti, uh, so dried spaghetti um, connected by marshmallows that a child might put together, maybe a toddler or uh, an elementary school student. So all of these things, objects that I just described are connective structures, but they're all very different and they can show very different organization. Well, mathematics allows us to describe those different organizations um, and therefore also allows us to uh, understand the different, um, rules by which we may each be engaging in curious practices. Uh, so for people who are not, um, mathematicians, um, we, we describe some of the, um, the mathematical background for this in a very conceptual way uh, without equations for example um, and really and also have added many illustrations to the book um, that help to uh, show some of these ideas as if they were a bunch of spaghetti sticks um, connected with marshmallows.
1: Uh, let me also add just as someone who isn't uh, you know trained in math um, at least beyond a college level, right um, what I gather from, this particular a, a mathematical approach to curiosity is this: um, networks, these 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 stru- interconnected structures, um, are described as being things one can walk on. And when you st- when you start going from one thing to the connected um, topic, to the next connected topic, to the next connected topic, it's described as you're walking on that network. And you can have all kinds of different walks because you can make different connections in your brain between different ideas, right? Um, but what's fantastic about that, thinking about walking on a network of ideas is that you can think about all the resonances in the humanities and history and, and and literature before us that has thought about walking in curiosity together so so Curiosity is this thing that drives us, in fact, to walk material landscapes to new places, to go a different path on a different day, to try out something new, to notice something on the edge of the horizon, and to go off that way, even if you didn't mean to go that way, right? So curiosity does this. It, it moves us around a landscape in unexpected ways. Um, and it does the same thing in the cognitive landscape, it drives us to try out new walks, uh, and there's a, just a lovely resonance between the mathematical formulation of walking on networks with the kind of everyday formulation of walking curiously in, to know new things in the world.
0: Can you elaborate on the relationship between curiosity and walking? What does your book say about walks? Why did the great philosophers appreciate walking so much?
1: Yeah, so good segue. <laughs> um so so we do talk a lot about walking and this correlation right between the mathematics and, and the humanities of, of walking and and curiosity. But um in particular we think about different mental walks that different Ways of thinking can be. Let let me let me make it really concrete. When you're going to the store, you're rushing to the store because you have to pick up something that you forgot and that you need for dinner. Okay. The way in which your body moves, the way in which your mind moves, the kind of focus you have, you know, making a beeline. Let's get in. Let's get out. I need this one thing. Let's go. Right. It's a way you're you're in a particular mental um state, I should say, and and your thoughts move differently in that state than. For example, if you've just recently met someone who you're falling in love with and you're both out for one of your first ambles in the city or in the countryside, okay? How you walk in that case, how you think in that case, how the thoughts move is going to be radically different. How the thoughts feel is going to be radically different. So there's there's a way in which our thoughts are patterned after our own walks in, the na- in natural space. Similarly, so we, we begin with, for example, Socrates and Plato. Plato is someone who is very meticulous about how he walks through ideas. He's incredibly dedicated to making distinctions, really, really careful distinctions, consistently peeling away this layer and this layer and this layer. And he's known for not not necessarily being a big walker, right? When he wants to think, he sort of sits down, let's think about it um, and let's do that careful peeling away. Whereas Socrates, who was his... um, who was his mentor and and his teacher is very different. He's often written about as this guy who's just wandering around all the time, right? Getting lost in Athens all the time, standing here, moving there for no real reason, doesn't seem to know where he's going often. And the same is true of his thoughts. The way he thinks is like, let's try out this question. Let's try out that question. I don't really know where to go next. Do you? Like let's, you know, and his goal is sort of to get us to a place where, um, we're in aporia, which is a Greek word meaning there's no way out. <laughs> so there's no egress. Uh, I'm stuck, right? If you ever get to that place where you're mentally stuck, like I don't actually know how to think through this, he's like, yes, we've done it. Uh, that's that's Socrates' goal, whereas Plato is like much more, let's let's actually get somewhere. Um, and again, both of them are walking through knowledge scapes and physical landscapes in really, really different ways. So I think that walking is this kind of, angle that helps us think about those differences in how we think and then how we move
0: what does your book teach us about the nature and character of relationships and friendships
1: danny do you want to chat about social networks even
2: um yeah sure so the um the mathematics that uh, has been developed to study networks of the mind, for example, has was actually originally developed in the context of social networks. So to understand how humans um, connect with other humans. So people today often think about um, the social networks that they can see on Facebook or Twitter. It's a set of individuals that they connect with um, as friends or as acquaintances or as colleagues. And there can be very interesting sort of Structures to their social network. So maybe I have a set of friends in um, a sports group and I have a set of friends in another extracurricular uh, group and then I have a set of friends from my English class and I have a set of friends from my science class um, or from different areas of my work, for example, and um, network science allows us to understand the structure of those those patterns of connection between individuals and also to understand how information then flows through um, structures of individuals. So how do we become apprised of new ideas or new technologies or new gadgets or new commitments or new perspectives on experiences? Um, all of that can be understood through how we are connected to one another. Um, so that's sort of the, the science perspective on it. But Perry, maybe um, there's certainly a, a sort of broader Description or understanding of the importance of social networks and curiosity. I mean Perry's um, earlier book it's called curiosity and power is one that um, focuses a lot on how social groups are curious.
1: Yeah, absolutely. If we think about knowledge as a network. When we think about curiosity as this capacity to build that network, really we need to talk about networks because there are different sets of knowledge, knowledge sets, knowledge networks that are being built by different people, groups at different times in um, the world history uh, in different locations around the globe, um, knowledge sets of knowledge or networks of knowledge that may be competing in certain ways, right? That have vast disagreements in basic presumptions about what's valuable and what's meaningful and what the world is even about and who we are, um, but also that might have really deep resonances with one another. So I think a lot about multiplying and paying attention to different traditions of knowledge, different histories of knowledge. And in this case, that means different networks of knowledge and focusing on curiosity as the capacity to build knowledge networks um, allows us to also think of curiosity as this capacity to bridge knowledge networks right? Not just build one, but bridge between them. And, and this may very well be an important, even crucial skill in a moment in which our world is increasingly polarized and where people can't talk to each other and and can't like get past the differences in their knowledge networks. Curiosity may be a key piece of, of, of building that bridge and walking that bridge between them.
0: What can a neuroscientist gain from reading this book? What does neuroscience teach us about curiosity? And what can the study of curiosity teach neuroscientists that they might not otherwise know?
2: Yeah, so the quest in neuroscience for understanding um, cognitive processes is frequently to find the brain region that helps us do that thing. So for example, what is the brain region that is active when we are curious? And, um, much of the work that has happened in the neuroscience of curiosity is seeking that. Is there a particular region of the brain that's active, um, that, and that explains our curiosity, but, um, Interestingly, the, the story is much, 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 much more complicated than that. So there isn't one particular region of the brain that is active when we're curious. There's a whole set of different regions and their connections with one another um, that explains what, when and how we are curious. So it's become understanding the neuroscience of curiosity has become a network question in and of itself in the sense that we need to understand the set of brain regions that are active and how they're related to one another. Um, Um, Each of those regions does something different. Some of them are related to our attention or our motivation or the encoding of the information into a knowledge landscape um, or the reward that we might feel when we attain that piece of information we were missing and connected up appropriately to other pieces we had before. Um, So right now, the neuroscience of curiosity is really uh, fundamentally exploring why and how it's that set of brain regions that's involved um, and sort of parsing the sub processes of curiosity, like motivation, attention, etc., um, and the sub pieces of the brain network that is involved as well. So um, that's where, where the, the neuroscience of the field is at the moment.
0: What is your book's contribution to the philosophy of science?
1: I think what's really, for me, there's, there's, I think there's many ways in which we could answer that question. But one of the things that's really exciting for me is that uh, philosophy of science tends not to really engage in um, the histories of philosophy deeply and the, the kind of cross current of literature like straightforward literature, you know, creative fiction, nonfiction that often bridges um, the enterprise of science and the enterprise of philosophy. And so what we do in this book is relevant to many of the, the basic questions in philosophy of science, but really it does something so much more interesting. And that is to carve out a new conversation between philosophy and science, a conversation that is rarely had today and has, in fact, been rarely had over centuries something that is a much richer dialogue not just philosophy of science or science of philosophy but what is it when you really get philosophy and science in a room talking to each other as if they were identical twins as we are you know and and you hear resonances and you see possibilities for new, really really new landscapes of ideas that have that that have some correlation to existing conversations but blow open some really new space danny yeah exactly
0: Which secondary sources on curiosity were most helpful to you in preparing this book? Why were they useful? What did you learn from them?
2: Danny. I was just actually going to ask you if you wanted to talk a little bit about um, Gloria Anzaldúa as somebody who um, shows a lot of the curiosity styles that we discuss in the book.
1: Yeah, I was going to say something similar. like. I mean, we brought, we're both right experts in our in our fields or in multiple fields and and we rely on literatures in philosophy and psychology and neuroscience uh, um, and literature specifically about curiosity in those fields and 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 that's been important for the work. But I don't think it's I don't think it's been the most salient material for the book, precisely because, while we're in conversation with literature that has gone before we're really trying to say something new and different about curiosity and to do that we're drawing on resources that are not particularly central to either of our multiple fields um so one example would be the work of gloria anzaldua who's a chicana feminist um writing in the in the 80s and 90s and uh she she does just this amazing work to think about living in border spaces, especially the U.S.-Mexico border, but certainly other other borders, the U.S.-Mexico border, and let's say also the border between science and religion. Actually, she talks a lot about the border between men and women, for example, between um, white people and people of color. There's there's these spaces of being between, and for and for her, she you know she describes herself. Um, as a mestizo or someone, someone who's mixed in a particular way. And what does it mean to be in the between spaces and what's really possible there? And for her negotiating many of those between spaces, she relies on her own curiosity, a curiosity that, you know, reads widely across multiple fields or between fields. So she's a really interdisciplinary transdisciplinary thinker. Um, She also tries to write between genres and kind of mix them in ways that are absolutely gorgeous and stunning. Um, and, and then she tries to imagine ideas that, again, live in this between space of what you recognize as an idea and what you don't yet recognize, right? It's this, it's this idea that's coming into being as she builds it. Um, so that's just one example, right? A literature of a person who is not particularly well-cited in philosophy or neuroscience or psychology right, at all, but whose who's life and work is really instrumental in how we're thinking about curiosity.
2: Yeah. And maybe I can just add that in In addition to maybe thinking differently about secondary sources for the book, we also thought very deeply about how to write a book that in the actual style of writing evinced the kind of curiosity that we are talking about. So instead of being um, very uh, sort of Structured, dry, and didactic. Um, we are really trying to show how we move from this idea to that idea on the page as we are moving through these ideas. Um, that that's it's something that we um, that we really wanted to write. It, it would feel very strange to write a book about a connective curiosity that didn't show these connections as it was moving. Um, and so we we really. Played with the genre, um, pulling in voices here and there, pulling in poetry, um, uh, philosophy, science, literature, et cetera, history, um, uh, pedagogical, uh, texts to, to illustrate how the mind moves across these ideas. Um, so just to sort of mention that there's a, there's a meta-curiosity that you will also sense as you're reading the book.
0: As we bring our dialogue to a close, can you kindly tell us what you're working on next as your current project? What are you working on now?
1: I mean, the the short answer to this is multiple things. Uh, so we've really we've we, we've been bitten by the bug of writing together, and now we're really not sure how to how to put it down. So we have multiple book ideas on the table that we're sort of working through and are in different stages of development. Danny, I don't know if you want to speak to one of them
2: yeah i think one of them is related to this idea of a mental landscape and how we move on that mental landscape um and so that's something that we're excited about we also will be um bringing in a lot of information from animal science and be inspired by lots of creatures as as we do the next steps as well
0: amazing i wish you the best of luck that project sounds phenomenal thanks where can our listeners find your book
1: they can find it anywhere they typically buy books, so online or in local bookstores, you know, um, you can buy it directly on Amazon, of course, but also directly from the publisher, MIT Press. Um, and you can find out more about our work uh, on my website, www.perryzern.com And Danny? Mine is dannysbassett.com.
0: Wonderful. To our listeners, I'm your host on the new book network, New Books Network, Ari Barbalat. Today, I have been in dialogue with Danny Bassett and Perry Zern regarding their new book, Curious Minds, The Power of Connection, Mm -hmm. published by MIT Press 2022. Danny is the J. Peter Skirkanich Professor in the Department of Bioengineering, Department of Electrical Electrical and Systems Engineering. Department of Physics and Astronomy, the Department of Neurology, and the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Pennsylvania. Danny is also an external professor at the Santa Fe Institute. Perry Zern is Associate Professor of Philosophy at American University and affiliate faculty in the Department of Critical Race, Gender, and Culture Studies. Thank you.
1: Thanks so much. Thanks.